Today is an exciting day in the life of our church. For the first time ever, our new children's ministry edition is open. So those of you with young kids, I hope you didn't make any plans for right after the service because your kiddos are not going to want to go anywhere. Uh, Tiffany Singer, our children's ministry director, was telling me it was like three weeks ago and there was a little boy that was four years old and he was over there and he was so excited about that indoor playground that he started crying when he learned that he wasn't going to be able to play on it until we had our certificate of occupancy. And so if that's your son, I hope you will give him like a couple extra minutes on the playground this morning. And I'm also really grateful to know that regardless of how well the sermon is received this morning, I know for at least one person in our congregation, today is going to be a great Sunday. Our uh, lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, is with our new member class this morning, which for the first time ever is being held in our new discipleship center. And the builders turned over the keys to that space late last week, but there's still plenty of punchless items that need to happen over there, so we'd ask you not to go wandering around over there today. Just save that for next Sunday and realize it's still going to be a couple weeks before we get everything furnished, but we're excited about that. And I'm just, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed that this time last year, we're all discussing the possibility of this, and now here we are, one year later, and thanks be to God that this is a reality. And uh, I just, I, I know that this would not have been possible without so many people, and I want to thank those of you that prayed about this, those of you that gave towards this, those of you that helped pick out colors and furniture and playground equipment, those of you that hosted events in your home and at the church, those of you that helped us figure out the best way to structure the financing. This was a total team effort. And uh, I want to thank especially Alan Jones right there and Sunny Flowers for what they did working with uh, our builders these past eight months. Uh, to, yeah, the, their hard work is, is one of the reasons that um, these spaces are going to serve us well for years to come. And I, and I also would be remiss if I didn't thank one person individually, especially. Back in 2004, this individual uh, led the building team that gave us the church that we have right here. And then in 2006, he came on staff as our facility manager. And for the past two years, uh, this individual has also worked very closely with the architect, with the builders, to oversee the, the design and the construction of these spaces. And uh, now that he has got us to the finish line, after 17 years of faithful service to the church, that gentleman right over there, Bill Davidson, is retiring. He retired this past Monday. never know all that Bill's done for this place. There's been times when we've been able to have church on Sunday morning because he was out on Saturday all day with a shovel clearing the sidewalks. Uh, when the alarm goes off at 2 a.m., it's Bill that's here to respond. So, Bill, you're, you're going to be missed. We appreciate you. If you have a Bible with you today, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And before we turn our attention to verses 21 to 35, I want you to note what comes right before this. In the preceding verses, Jesus is teaching on how Christians are to respond 
when they've been wronged by a fellow believer. And on the, the heels of this, Peter asks a really relevant question. It's a natural question. Beginning in verse 21, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now the rabbis of Jesus' day recommended limiting forgiveness to three times. But Peter here, he's making noteworthy progress in the school of Christ. I mean, two chapters earlier, this is the guy that's praised by Jesus for how he responds to the question, who do you say that I am? Peter's been with Jesus for nearly three years now. He knows this isn't the first time that Jesus has taught on forgiveness, and he's connecting the dots. He recognizes that Jesus is a kind of, you know, extra mile, above and beyond kind of guy. And so Peter says, I'll double the recommendation, and, and I'll add one to it. Jesus how about if I forgive as many as seven times? And before we look at Jesus' response, can we just empathize with Peter for a moment? Can we, can we acknowledge that it's really natural to want to put a limit on forgiveness? I mean, forgiveness isn't something that comes instinctively to any of us. When we've been wronged, what's our instinct? We want to settle the score, right? We say things like, oh, I don't get mad. I get even. If you want to know something about the condition of the human heart, just think about the movies that do well at the box office. Let's say I asked you to give me a, a list of movies that deal with forgiveness. Well, we could probably put our heads together and we could come up with like one or two titles, but what about if I said, can you give me a list of movies that have to deal with revenge about about people getting even. Well, gosh, that list wouldn't be that hard to generate, would it? I mean, we can't seem to get enough of plot lines like Gladiator and Man on Fire and The Count of Monte Cristo and Payback, and we could keep going on and on and on. That's what sells. When someone who has been wronged goes and, and pursues vengeance on their own terms. Forgiveness is hard. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. In other words, forgiveness is one of those ideas that we all like, it briefs well, until we actually have to forgive someone. Which is why it was so stunning this past week when 18-year-old Brant John took the stand in a Dallas courtroom to deliver a victim impact statement. In the case you missed this, Amber Geiger, a former police officer, was on trial for murdering Brant's brother, Botham, in his own apartment. And there's only two rules for a victim impact statement, no profanity and no threatening. And what followed was, was breathtaking. The Dallas Morning News reported, and I'm quoting here, courthouse veterans wept at something they'd never seen before. So Brant took the stand, and he looked at his brother's killer, and he uttered these words, if you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. He went on to tell Amber Geiger he wanted what his brother Botham would have wanted. He said, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. Then he did something remarkable. He asked the judge if he could hug his brother's killer. And as the two embraced, 
Tears began to fill their eyes. This was a scene you never would have expected to see in a murder trial. And Brant John provides a very powerful example for us of what forgiveness is. Some people say that, that forgiveness is forgetting. Maybe you've heard that expression before, all forgive and forget, yes? Well, forgiveness doesn't mean that we pretend like nothing ever happened. It's not that we like literally try and forget. What forgiveness means is we forget the desire to get even, and we hold no ill will against the other person. If we forgive someone, what we're saying is there's no longer any score to settle. You lay aside your desire to avenge yourself. And and yet, it's important to remember this, that forgiveness is not at odds with justice. Because you're not pardoning, pardoning what this person did. You're not minimizing anyone's sin. It just means you're releasing them from your debt, and you're consciously turning this matter over to God, and you're letting Him be judge, and you're trusting Him to deal justly with the offending person. Or if the person has committed a criminal offense, you're releasing it to the state as well and allowing them to dispense justice. But letting go of of anger and bitterness when we've been wronged, that's a really hard thing to do. And so you can probably guess the kind of response that Peter was hoping for when he suggested to the Jesus that he'd be willing to forgive someone up to seven times. I'm sure he was thinking maybe he'd get another attaboy or a pat on the back. And instead, Jesus gives this loving redirect. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, don't focus on the number because Jesus isn't saying, hey, Peter, your forgiveness scorecard, it just, you, you, it's a little short, you need to up the number. Jesus isn't suggesting that if we forgive someone 77 times and they, they come and they mess up 78 times and they ask for forgiveness that we say, no, it's on, like, forget about it. The point Jesus is making is that we shouldn't be keeping track. Forgiveness should be limitless. And then to underscore this point, to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus throws a parable alongside it. Now, if our very talented creative communications director, Brett Canode, back there were to turn this parable into a movie, he'd shoot three scenes. The first scene is recorded for us in verses 23 to 27. As the story begins, we meet a king who wished to settle accounts with the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I know that's a monetary unit that most of us are unfamiliar with. We don't go carrying around talents. But by way of background in Jesus' day, a talent was a unit of weight equivalent to 75 pounds. Now, I know some of you ladies have a purse that would allow you to carry around a talent or two, but I think I speak for the rest of us when we sure are glad for the innovation of paper currency. You know, commentators have spent some time trying to calculate the the exact value of 10,000 talents in today's currency. But let's not get hung up trying to convert this, because here's what we need to know. Back then, a talent was the highest denomination of currency, and 10,000 
was the highest Greek numeral. We get our word myriad from that Greek word for 10,000. So when Jesus says that the servant owed a myriad talents, Jesus is conveying that this servant owed the, the largest amount imaginable. Sometimes, in fact, that Greek word myrios is even translated as countless in our Bible. And so the point that Jesus is making is this guy owed a really, really big debt to the master. And in the ancient world, when you couldn't pay, you didn't have the option to file for chapter 13. So in keeping with the common practice of the day, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the servant, when he saw what was happening, he did the only thing that he could think of. He, he begged for mercy. He said, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And let me just add, this is a really unrealistic promise. And yet something astonishing happens. Here's what we read in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This, this servant is begging for more time. And the king does, goes and does something completely unexpected, something way more generous. He absorbs the entire amount. He forgives the entire debt owed. And Jesus tells us that this forgiveness was motivated by pity. It can also be translated compassion. You know, this word, it appears four other times in the book of Matthew. And in every other case, guess who it's used to describe? Jesus. It's how Jesus reacts when he sees the helpless crowds without any shepherd. It's what's stirred up in Jesus' heart when he sees the two blind men crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And as this scene closes, we find ourselves applauding this beautiful act of grace. And as the curtain opens for scene two, we'd expect to see great things from this forgiven servant, similar to what we see from Jean Valjean and Les Miserables after he's been forgiven by the bishop from stilling the silverware. But this servant's actions are anything but heroic. Let's look now at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, as scene one ended with a round of applause, how does scene two end? We're shaking our heads in disbelief, right? I mean, this is shocking. The servant comes out of the king's chambers, having been forgiven this enormous debt, and what's on his mind? Finding this guy who owed him. That verb found in verse 28, it implies that he went out looking for this fellow who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, back then, a denarii was one day's wages for a laborer. So this amount isn't insignificant. It's approximately three months' wages. It's real debt, but it's insignificant compared with 10,000 talents. When you compare 100 denarii to 10,000 talents, it's not even a drop in the bucket. It's like $10,000 to $10 billion. It's a trivial amount. And, and the point that Jesus is making here is that our debt to God is so much greater 
than any debt someone might owe us. That's a hard truth. But that's what Jesus is saying. And what's really interesting is that this second servant pleads for mercy with almost the exact words that the first servant used with the king. Now, you think this might have jogged his memory and softened his heart, but the first servant's response is totally opposite the king's generosity. His response stands in stark contrast to the king. He, he refused, in verse 30, is literally, he was not willing. This guy made a conscious decision to harden his heart. And as the camera pans out on the scene, we see the other servants, they're distressed by what has taken place, and they, woe, they go and they report to their master all that's unfolded. End scene two. Now as the curtain rises on our final scene, our two original characters, they reappear in the king's chamber, beginning now in verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is so strong here. You know what's interesting? Jesus sees no incongruity between a heavenly father who, who, who forgives generously and at the same time judges and punishes appropriately. Jesus has no issue with that. And I know his words in verse 35 raise some questions. And to understand the point that he's making, I think we need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Jesus certainly isn't teaching a works-based salvation, namely that we're saved by forgiving others. Nor does it seem to make sense that Jesus would be teaching here uh, something that would contradict what he's taught elsewhere, that you know, once we acquire this salvation by grace through faith, we can somehow go and lose it. Rather, I think the, the point that Jesus is making here is, is one that's intended to generate some self-examination. If we refuse to forgive others, maybe Jesus wants us to question the authenticity of our own salvation. Maybe, maybe if we refuse to forgive others, Jesus wants us to wonder whether we've really appropriated the grace that he offers. Because I think the point that Jesus is making here is that there's an inseparable connection to for God's forgiveness and the forgiveness that we extend to other people. And I think this is a, a, a direct but a very loving warning to those people who might be familiar with church, they might be familiar with Jesus, they might know songs about Jesus and have read books about Jesus, but they've never been saved by Jesus. And I think the beauty of this parable is what Jesus is doing is he's not only providing instruction to his disciples, he's also wanting to jar these people out of their spiritual complacency. As we reflect on this parable, two key themes emerge. The first 
is God's boundless grace. As we think about the characters in this parable, guess which ones we're to identify with? I'll give us a hint. It's not the master. The compassionate king, that reminds us of the grace that God extends to us. Jesus wants us to identify with the, with the first servant, the one who had the enormous debt forgiven. That's who we are. And if you sit back and think about it, this is really offensive. It's even more offensive than the latter part of the parable where we learn that God actually gets angry enough to judge people. Because he, what Jesus is communicating, it's an absolute affront to decent church-going people like you and me. I mean, after all, we're, we're upstanding, law-abiding people, right? We're not like those people we read about in the news. I mean, all of us, we lead good, ethical, moral lives, right? We don't have that big of a sin problem. I mean, if, if Ted Bundy has a trillion dollar debt with the Almighty, we probably owe what, like a couple hundred bucks, right? That's us. We're not that bad. God hasn't had to forgive us that much, right? And the answer is no. And that's what's so hard about this parable. Jesus reminds us that there's no room in the kingdom of heaven for any kind of self-righteous thinking. Jesus demands that we make a sober assessment of our condition apart from him. See, here's what's true for all of us. Whether you're a model citizen or you're a hardened convict, whether you are president of the Rotary Club or whether you're a head of a cartel, for each one of us, our sin problem is so big, our, our debt is so large that the Son of God had to come to earth and had to die in our place. That's how bad we are. And you know that you've been saved by Jesus. You know that you've entered the kingdom of heaven when you can honestly sing from the depth of your heart. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those of us who are, who are truly Christians, we can own those words. We recognize our wretched and helpless state apart from Christ. And we're overwhelmed with this lavish and an incredibly undeserved generosity that God has showered on us. And the beauty of this parable is that Jesus not only answers Peter's original question about how many times we must forgive, he also answers the logical follow-up question, the question that would have been on everyone's mind. And that question is, well, like, how in the world can we offer unlimited forgiveness, right? How can God expect that from us? Well, it's because we've been forgiven so much. Since God paid an infinite price to forgive us our sins, he's saying that we'd be acting just like that first servant who sent his fellow servant to prison if we don't forgive others. And this is the second theme we see emerging from the parable, the absurdity of ingratitude. From God's perspective, it's absurd for a Christian not to forgive others. And you might say, well, you know, my situation's a little different. 
someone did something really horrific to me. I mean, you, you, you can't even imagine the injustice that was done to me. I know there's some, some awful atrocities that happen in this world. We read the news. We, we know the depravity that mankind is capable of. And I'm not wanting to minimize the pain and the hurt that any of you have experienced. I know it's real. And I know this is a hard teaching. But what we see Jesus saying is that with his help, he would want to nudge us towards forgiveness. And I think of Corey Tenboom, who was arrested for hiding Jews from the Nazis. And she survived the horrors of a concentration camp, but her beloved sister Betsy didn't. And remarkably, Corey made the decision to forgive her tormentors and went on to travel the world sharing her story of God's forgiveness of sins and the need to extend forgiveness to others. Perhaps some of you are familiar with her book, The Hiding Place. Well, one day while speaking at a church in Munich, Germany, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her at the close of the service. And Corey froze. She knew this man. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out and saying, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had so glibly spoken of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me from the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours. As I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. 
I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And I suspect for many of us here, there's an individual in our lives just like that former prison guard that would be really difficult to forgive. Someone who's done us or a loved one a great deal of harm. And after all you've suffered, you're wondering, how in the world can I do what Jesus commands here? And I, I think it's important to realize that forgiveness is different from reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-way street. And if the person who injured you isn't remorseful, if they're still dangerous, maybe they've passed away, then reconciliation isn't really an option. But forgiveness is. You can choose to release them inwardly. You can choose to say, I want to lay aside my desire to get even and to settle the score. I'm no longer going to entertain these vindictive thoughts. For some of us here, God's speaking to us right now. And he's pressing us and he says, I want you to forgive that coworker or a parent or a sibling or a former spouse or a loved one. You've been wrong. You've been betrayed. You've been cheated on. You've been lied to. You've been made fun of. You've been bullied. And very naturally, you feel anger towards this person. And Jesus says, I want you to release that. And I want to give us some space now where we can come before God and we can invite him to guide us in this. Will you pray with me? God, you know we struggle with forgiveness. We know this is an area of our lives where Satan can gain ground. You know forgiveness goes against everything in our nature. When we've been wronged, our first thought isn't to forgive, but we're so grateful that you're not like us. And we thank you for being a forgiving God. I pray that you would help us to grasp the magnitude of what it is that you've done for us. And Lord, in light of what you've revealed to us from your word this morning, 
I know you're speaking to us about people we need to forgive. And I know for some of us, there's a specific person that you're prompting us right now to forgive. If you're ready to do that, I want to invite you to pray along with me now. Say, God, I choose to forgive this person. And say their name to God. Tell them right now. God, I release them to you. I trust you to be judge. And God, I realize that this is a lifelong commitment. And I know that some days will be better than others. God, when I'm tempted to nurse bitterness or fret over the injustice, I pray that you would help me to keep my eyes focused on what you did for me at the cross. Please fill me with the empowering work of your spirit so that I might have the strength to fully forgive from my heart. And in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.